0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. want to uh, start the talk tonight <clears throat> reading from the teaching that uh, first hooked me into the Dharma. <clears throat> One that perhaps, actually, I'm sure a number of you are quite familiar with. It's from the uh, <clears throat> from the Anguttara Nikaya, the Kalamas, the Kalama Sutta, <clears throat> where these villagers uh, are visited by so many great teachers, or varying levels of teachers, each one proclaiming. To know the truth. And then the Buddha comes and he also is saying that he knows the truth. And they are confused who to believe. And they have a lot of doubts around this. He says, it is indeed fitting, Kalamas, to be uncertain. It is fitting to doubt. For in situations of uncertainty, doubts surely arise. You should decide, Kalamas, not by what you have heard, not by following convention, not by assuming it is so, not by relying on the texts, not because of reasoning, not because of logic, not by thinking about explanations, not by acquiescing to the views that you prefer, not because it appears likely, and certainly not out of respect for a teacher, but when you would know kalamas for yourselves, these things are unhealthy, these things, when entered upon and undertaken, incline toward harm and suffering, then kalamas, you should reject them. And when you would know kalamas for yourselves, that these things are healthy, these things, when entered upon and undertaken, inclined toward welfare and happiness, then Kalamas, having come to them, you should stay with them." <clears throat> Here is the Buddha saying, basically, don't believe anyone. Don't trust Anyone merely because they seem to have the authority. But look for yourself. Check out the truth for yourself. In the chanting each evening, uh, when we chant, there's the, the words, uh, Ehi Pasiko, O Pasiko, come and see for yourself. The Dharma is for everyone to see for themselves. But then the question comes, um, how do we know how we can trust ourselves? There's lots of different voices that are inside, aren't there? And they all have very clever arguments. This is really what you should do. No, maybe it should be this. Oh, I know. I'll ask the teacher. Maybe they'll know. And that's what we often do, and it's a, it's a good thing to check, have a little bit of a reality check while you're in that space that you're in. And when I sit retreats, I certainly go to interviews and and want to get some guidance. It's a very useful thing because you come into retreat and actually you're kind of um, it's a regressive process. I don't know if you are aware of this, but you come in, maybe you have this feeling, you come into an interview and you feel maybe about six or seven years old, you know? (laughs) Well, you're not alone. Because all the the personality, all the history, all the the armoring, it's all exposed. And part of the the beauty of the practice is that as we are so open, so in some ways vulnerable, naked in in many ways, we have a chance to truly get in touch with our deepest truth and informed by some teachings that can help us see the truth, we can rearrange our, uh, our old patterns to, to new ways of seeing things. But we're so young in there. We're all, the way I see it, we're all like little kids just in big bodies that have grown up and we're trying to look grown up and old. But when you get frightened, your fear isn't so different than when you were four years old frightened. When you get angry, it's not so different than when you were a little kid and your candy was taken away. When you get joyful, wow, it's probably not so different than when you're a little kid with this big grin on your face. Yeah, yeah. So given that, how do we know what to trust and who to trust inside? Because sometimes the frightening voices are the loudest ones. Sometimes the wisest ones can be heard. So you come into an interview, oh yes, maybe I can speak to the teacher. Well, um, I just have a little news for you, and that is um, if what you hear makes sense from the person you interview with, uh, be careful not to think that's the answer. That was the right answer, because uh, if you went to four other teachers, they might have a different suggestion, and you'd walk out there thinking, yes, that's the right answer too. There's lots of different ways to do this practice. The basic guideline is, can I Be open to experience. Can I let it be how it is and meet it with a kind awareness that sees clearly? And within that, there's lots of different ways to do it. You know, you have... uh, Well, I was talking about it when I gave that talk on the comparing mind. And also the last one, many different kinds of approaches from heroic effort, abandon all concern for the body, to simple and easy, nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. Lots of different messages, even in the same same day from the same person they might say, come on, every moment counts, you can do it, or just relax, just lighten up. So that gets confusing within itself. Well, maybe the Buddha would have the right answer. The Buddha, it said, taught 84,000 Dharma gates. So if you want to narrow it down to one or two, that gets a little bit uh, overwhelming too. Lots of different ways to practice and lots of different instructions depending upon who he was seeing. For some people, it would be do the the Satipatthana method, just lifting, moving, placing, or feeling mindfulness in all the postures. For somebody else, you know, he might say, take this handkerchief and just rub it. This is one story and he just had this this monk rub it and rub it and rub it, because he wasn't much of a a practice-oriented monk and after a while he saw how dirty it got and and saw the truth of impermanence and became awakened. Maybe we 'll do handkerchief retreats. You know. <laughs> lots of different ways, and the Buddha also saw that there are lots of different ways with uh, to work with thoughts, many different ways. You know he saw he recognized how easy it is to get caught in your thoughts. as soon as you identify with them and take them to be real, you 're hooked and so. Depending upon your temperament or your energy level or where you are in, in your practice, there might be different approaches to to deal with um, getting you unhooked or seeing clearly the emptiness of the thoughts, but they're tricky. you know Sally gave that uh, that great talk on papancha. You know, papancha really gets you. you know? <laughs> Thoughts create other thoughts create other thoughts. This is a a Calvin and Hobbes Hobbes cartoon I came across a couple of years ago. First frame, here I am, happy and content. And the next frame, but not euphoric. (laughs) Third frame, so now I'm no longer content. I'm unhappy. My day is ruined fourth frame. I need to stop thinking while I'm ahead. Uh, That's papancha at work. Thoughts create problems when we believe them. Sometimes we tell ourselves stories that can be very uplifting. If we're in a bright mood and have a lot of energy, yeah seems like nothing can really stick then and confuse us. If our energy is low or we're kind of open and, and a little bit confused, then the mind can go in a very different direction. And sometimes we have a, a story that keeps on coming up that becomes our perspective on life. Here's a, a, a cute little uh, anecdote about uh, two twins. A story of identical twins. One was a hope-filled optimist. Everything is coming up roses, he would say. The other was a sad and hopeless pessimist. The worried parents of the boys brought them to the local psychologist. He suggested to the parents a plan to balance the twins' personalities. On their next birthday, put them in separate rooms to open their gifts. Give the pessimist the best toys you can afford, and give the optimist a box of manure. The parents followed these instructions and carefully observed the results. When they peeked in on the pessimist, they heard him audibly complaining, I don't like the color of this computer. I'll bet this calculator will break. I don't like this game. I know someone who's got a bigger toy car than this. Tiptoeing across the corridor, The parents peeked in and saw their little optimist gleefully throwing the manure up in the air. He was giggling, you can't fool me, where there's this much manure there's gotta be a pony. So a lot happens by the, the conditioning that we keep on recreating, and the stories we tell ourselves. And sometimes it's particularly challenging to get unhooked from certain thoughts. So I wanted to read to you from a sutta, one of my favorite suttas from the Nikaya, about the Buddha's suggestion his advice for the removal of distracting thoughts, the Santana Sutta. This is when mindfulness doesn't work, when it's not strong enough. These are some other methods that he suggested. Here bhikkhus, when a practitioner is giving attention to some sign and owing to that sign, particular thought, there arise in him evil, I'll, I'll read this first one evil and then I'll skip that word, it doesn't, it doesn't conduce to uh, inspiration for me. <laughs> owing to that sign, there arise in him unwholesome mind states connected with desire, with hate, and with delusion. Then he should give attention to some other thought connected with what is wholesome. When he gives attention to some other thought connected with what is wholesome, then the unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hate, and delusion are abandoned in in him and subside. With the abandoning of them, the mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated, just as a skilled carpenter or his apprentice might knock out remove and extract a coarse peg by means of a finer one, so too, when a practitioner gives attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome, the mind becomes steady, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated." This is his first method. This was the question that was raised this morning. Is it okay to do metta when, uh, uh, when we're getting lost? And this is his first suggestion to substitute what is wholesome for a confusing, unwholesome thought. So it's really bringing an antidote in to get enough balance of mind so that then you can see clearly. If there's a lot of fear or anger in the mind, doing some metta. Or other classical antidotes to the the hindrances. If there's a lot of desire and the mindfulness isn't strong enough, reflecting on impermanence, on how things change, and what it is that you're grasping after, and what it's going to look like in 20 years. That kind of takes the the glamour out of it. If there's a lot of guilt, then to reflect on some wholesome actions that you've done. If there's doubt, you think of something or reflect on something that brings about faith. Lots of different ways that you can balance the mind. If things are very tight, you uh, go out in nature and get a sense of spaciousness. So that's his first suggestion. But he also realized that that's not foolproof, and there might be still some difficulties. So he goes on to number two. If, while giving attention to some other thought connected with what is wholesome, there still arise unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hate, and delusion, then the practitioner should examine the danger in those thoughts thus. These thoughts are unwholesome. They result in suffering. And when examining the danger in those thoughts, the unwholesome thoughts subside. And with abandoning them, the mind becomes steady, quieted, etc. Just as a man or woman, young, youthful, and fond of ornaments, would be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung around his or her neck, <laughs> so too. When a practitioner examines the danger in those thoughts, the mind becomes steadied, quieted, brought to singleness, concentrated. So basically, he's saying, if you can realize it, wait a second, do I want to jump on this train? Or is the colloquial expression is, in in recent years, don't even go there. That's what the Buddha said don't go there if you can help it. And one way to realize you don't need to go there is that if I go there, I'm gonna be caught. It's gonna be a whole other storm that I'll go into for the next two hours or two days or whatever. One way that is very helpful to keep from going there is to frame, when you see a particular pattern of thought coming up, to frame it and name it. You know, Jack has this expression, the top ten tunes in the mind on a retreat. And we usually have at least, you know, two or three going on. You know, relationship thoughts, or uh, work thoughts, or family history thoughts or whatever. And if you name it, if you can name it, you get some space around it. I've mentioned this before. On one retreat, on one uh, six-week retreat, uh, as I was going into the retreat, I made the mistake of looking at the football schedule (laughs) of the 49ers before I went into the retreat. And I'm a big especially in those days, I was a huge 49er fan. I still am a 49er fan, but the glory (laughs) days are over for now, anyway. (laughs) And that was probably the biggest let-go in sitting for the six weeks, that I'd be missing half the season. I mean, it was, you know, I had my own addiction there. But I also, once I saw it, I remembered very well, you know, Sunday at four o'clock, they're in Atlanta. Now, my body has a particular biorhythm during football season, where, you know, Friday, I'm starting to get anticipata- anticipating the game, Saturday, it's happening tomorrow, and then Sunday, it's going on. And for those, for the first week, I was, there's the game, it's game time. And it took me a, a couple of days to unwind from whatever my fantasy of the game was. And, So that's what my normal rhythm was at home, and I saw I was going to get into this each each week, and it was six weeks, and I remembered very well the schedule. So by the second week, I said I've got to do something about this, and I remembered well. I remembered I didn't even know the sutta then, but I just (laughs) used used this technique when I saw those thoughts coming on, football thoughts, football thoughts. Uh, Do I really want to go there? Or Steve Young thoughts. That was another, you know. (laughs) And just kind of framing it, it's a little bit of space, and I could choose whether I wanted to just jump into the whole movie. It's very, very helpful. And if you find yourself getting snagged by a particular pattern of thought, you might name it in a way that gives you some space around it, whether it's having a humorous name or... Uh, a very kind touch, so you don't get into a battle just with the recognition. Wanda, worrier thoughts. Okay, whatever it is. So that's the second method. Don't go there. Third, if while examining the danger in those thoughts, there still arise unwholesome thoughts, then one should try to forget those thoughts and not give attention to them. This is called forgetfulness and inattention. (laughs) Isn't it nice to know the Buddha talked about forgetfulness and inattention? When trying to forget those thoughts and not giving them attention, they subside. And with them, greed, hatred, and delusion are abandoned. And then the mind becomes quieted. Just as a person with good eyes who did not want to see forms that had come within range of sight would either shut his eyes or look away, so too... When a practitioner tries to forget those thoughts or not give attention to them, the mind becomes quieted and steadied. What that means is you turn your attention away from those thoughts to something else. Now this is different than the first one, which is the unwho- substituting the unwholesome with the wholesome. That is getting an antidote. This is turning your attention to- attention to something else that's happening right now. For instance, if you've got a strong pain and it's really hard to stay with, after a while the mind gets fatigued, what you would perhaps wisely do is just not keep on focusing on that, but just turn your attention to sounds. That's a very spacious uh, subject of awareness. or feeling some other sensations in your body. In the same way, if you're plagued by a particular thought pattern, turning your attention to something else, going right into the breath. Okay, let's just be with the breath for a while. Let's open up to sounds or whatever it is. It's turning your attention away from that. If after you've been with it for a while, you find yourself still getting caught and snagged. Remember, mindfulness is the first strategy for all of these. But maybe that doesn't work, so on to number four. If, while trying to forget those thoughts and not giving attention to them, there still arise unwholesome thoughts, then one should give attention to stilling the thought formation of those thoughts. And when giving attention to stilling the thought formations, the unwholesome thoughts subside and with the subsiding becomes a quieted mind. Just as a man walking fast might consider, why am I walking fast? What if I walk slowly? And he would walk slowly. Then he might consider, why am I walking slowly? What if I stand? And he would stand. And then he might consider, why am I standing? What if I sit? And then he would sit. And then he might consider, why am I sitting? What if I lie down? And he would lie down. By doing so, he would substitute for each grosser posture, one that was subtler. And so too, when a, a practitioner gives attention to stilling the thought formation of those thoughts, the mind becomes quieted and steadied. Now, two different aspects I've, I've seen interpreting this suggestion. One is, as that uh, image that's presented suggests, to just relax more and more, to just get calmer, get your, give yourself some space, create some ease in the mind. That's one way to still the thought formations. Another interpretation is seeing where they come from, and you can n- sometimes know that when a repetitive thought comes, keeps on coming over and over, there's a feeling underneath there that needs to be acknowledged. It's kind of a wellspring out of which those thoughts are bubbling. And so getting in touch with the source of those troublesome thoughts, oh, this is sadness or this is fear, and feeling it directly. Sometimes that is the way to open up to an ease and and clarity. So that's the fourth method. And then the fifth and final one, <clears throat> and I say this with, with uh, some caution. <clears throat> if while giving attention to stilling the thought formations of those thoughts, there still arise unwholesome thoughts, then with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth one should beat down, constrain, and crush mind with mind. (laughs) When, with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one beats down, constrains, and crushes mind with mind, then the unwholesome thoughts subside, and with abandoning them, the mind becomes steadied and uh, internally brought to quiet. Just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him, and crush him, so too with teeth clenched and tongue pressed, etc., etc. Now, you have to understand, the Buddha was a warrior. He came from the warrior class. And... You can use a very strong will, at times, to deal with the mind. Somebody was saying just today how they, they felt that bubbling up of, uh, of some troublesome thoughts uh, again, and they just stood up and said, No! And it worked, for a little while. <laughs> The thing about this that I've seen in my own practice is, it's like a firm parent, a firm loving parent, that says, no, enough. Just like a parent would, as a child is going out into the street, say, no, come on back here. This has to be done with a kind heart. And that's the balance. You can't do this, at least that I've seen, with aversion and anger. There's got to be a a real caring heart that says, enough now. And kind of like the parent taking the little child by the hand saying, okay, enough. So, five methods for dealing with distracting thoughts besides mindfulness. What's the teaching here? five methods besides mindfulness that he gives. There's no one right way to do it, which is what I started with. And so when the question comes, as it probably has to most of you, am I doing it right? Have you ever had that question come to you? (laughs) Am I doing it right? Please, I'm putting all this time in, I'm really working my butt off, please let me know I'm doing it right. And it's coming from a real place of sincerity, of wanting to, uh, to use the tools wisely and use the teachings wisely. But when you have that thought come to you and it leads to doubt, it's really painful. Doubt is the hindrance that cuts off everything, all kinds of possibilities, and cuts off faith and confidence. No one way to do it. Jack Kornfield has a, a great book. It's, it's, uh, it was originally titled Living Buddhist Masters, but then as most of them passed on, I think everyone's gone except for one, it, it's now renamed Living Dharma. That doesn't die anyway. And those 12 masters from Southeast Asia, as you read their practices, every one of them is different. And I I really suggest that you read that so you get a sense of the breadth and the different possibilities and approaches of, of practice. Ajahn Chah, who is Jack's teacher and Ajahn Sumedho's, Ajahn Amaro's teacher, he would say, uh, when, uh, when he was asked, I think it was Jack that went up to him and said, you know, you're very inconsistent. Sometimes you tell people one thing, and sometimes you contradict yourself. And uh, he says, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm seeing them walk down a road that I know very well, and when somebody's about to go into a ditch on the, on the right, I say, hey, go left, go left. And then maybe later someone... Else or that same person might be falling into a ditch on the left and I say, hey, go right, go right. With the uh, the teaching collective at Spirit Rock, I think one of the, the real values is that you see how many different ways there are to express the Dharma. And when we discuss different issues, it's not like we agree 100% on everything. But we're, there's a, a real camaraderie that makes it You know, exciting and rich to explore. No one way. So, with all of this, the question is: Who do you turn to, and who do you trust? I don't know if you're old enough to to remember. There used to be a TV show with Johnny Carson. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? Well, who do you think? Except, given the fact that there's lots of different voices, how do you know which voice to trust? What does that mean to trust yourself? What does it mean to trust yourself? Well, since you listen to yourself anyway, one way or another, you might as well listen to yourself with skill and get an idea of how you can discern all of those different voices and messages so you can truly learn to trust. And when you're trusting, it's not so much trusting yourself. I remember one time I, I went into an interview with with Joseph, and I and I saw how I really didn't trust myself in lots of different situations in my life. I didn't I didn't I didn't trust my judgment, or I didn't trust uh, my approach to things, even on retreat. You know, and I had some real doubts you know, about trusting myself because I keep on hearing that word, trust. And he said, instead of thinking of it as trusting yourself, you might think of it as just trusting in the awareness. And that's what it comes down to. Trusting in the awareness that meets this moment. What Ajahn Sumedho calls your Buddha knowing. Trusting in your Buddha knowing. You know, when we take refuge in the Buddha, it's not just in that historical figure who is so inspiring and and awesome in his breadth of, and depth of knowledge and, and wisdom and compassion, but more fundamentally it's trusting in that Buddha inside that truly knows When you hear something that somebody might say in a Dharma talk or read in a book, and it's really wise, don't get tricked into thinking, wow, they're so wise. What really happens is it touches a place in you that says, yeah, that's right. That is true. So more and more, the process is learning to be able to hear that place that really knows the truth when it encounters it. Trusting in your Buddha knowing. This is different than for me, trusting in James knowing. Yes, I know a whole lot. Forget it. As soon as you think you know it, the universe is going to come over and bop you on the head and say, oh yeah? And in, in order to have an insight, you know, this is, this is called insight meditation, and insights do happen from time to time. <laughs> in order to have an insight, that experience of, yeah, aha, wow, look at that, oh yeah. It means that you're seeing it fresh for the first time in a way that you never saw it before. If it works out just the way you planned it or thought it was going to be, you just end up patting yourself on the back saying, pretty clever, I'm pretty smart. But in order to have, wow, ah, uh aha, it means you've let go of you figuring anything out. And there's an openness that wisdom emerges through. There's a beautiful line in the Third Zen Patriarch. It says, Stop talking and thinking, and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. I love that line. Isn't that the way it works? When you stop talking and thinking and figuring everything out, or trying to figure everything out, boom, then the wisdom comes. So again, it comes down to this quality of trust. Freedom from the known, as Krishnamurti says in his book title. Letting go of knowing. It's so beautiful. It's so freeing <clears throat> to see that there's a place inside that truly is the Buddha all along. When you don't work so hard to get it. This is Michelangelo. When someone lavished praise on him for his skill in creating the beautiful masterpiece, David. He brushed aside the compliment by saying, the man was already in the stone. I merely removed all the pieces of rock that kept him from being seen. And in a way, that's what we're doing. You know, this practice, Vipassana, is called seeing things clearly. When we see beyond all the obscurations that the mind creates, we open up to the deepest wisdom that's available, that's here for us, that's inviting us to know itself, if I can use that that image. There's a Buddha inside that's saying, hey, wake up. Just pay attention and be kind. That's what it all comes down to. You know, you probably have been hearing that when you were a little kid. Isn't that what they told us? You know, Pay attention. Right? Pay attention now. You know? Be nice. They were right. <laughs> That's what it's about. And then you see that Buddha inside. And you see the Buddha everywhere. The Buddha saying... I I opened the retreat a long time ago with this quote. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand and so do not cultivate the mind and the heart. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This, the noble follower of the way, really understands. So for them, there is cultivation of the mind and the heart. Luminous is this mind right inside there. and every one of us is a luminous mind. So, how do we get in touch with it? Again, this is the question. With that natural understanding and wisdom. Well, for one, mindfulness really is the primary tool, because in the moment of mindfulness we are seeing clearly what's truly here, without grasping at the pleasant, without pushing away the unpleasant, and without identifying with or taking ownership of the experience. You just see it like it is. So every moment that you're truly mindful, you can trust that moment. The moment is trustable. The awareness can meet it without reactivity. And even if it's been a moment where you got hooked and there you are grasping and obsessing, and filled with whatever confused thought it is. When you're mindful in that moment, you are unhooking yourself from that grasping. You're seeing clearly, oh, that's how grasping works. And you are waking up to the second noble truth, and in fact, experiencing the third noble truth. When you are not hooked by the thought, and you see it clearly, Oh, this is just fear. Oh, this is just freaking out. That's what's going on. okay? And in that moment, ah, there's space again. But, as the Buddhists saw, sometimes the mindfulness isn't strong enough. So I, I thought I'd share with you some ways that I find and that perhaps you also have found in yourself for learning to trust and listen, one could say that the whole meditation process is one of deep listening, learning to listen really well. How can we learn to listen really well? One thing that I find extremely helpful to pay attention to when all those voices are coming through is the tone of the voice. There are lots of voices that come through that say, you really should do this. It would be terrible if you didn't do this. You really need this. Or why did that SOB do this? Mm, All of that there are some voices that come through in a much deeper and more connected way that say, this feels right. This doesn't feel right. The first class has a jaggedness to it, has some contraction, some agitation in there. The second one, is connected to a place of real wisdom, and it's usually strong, supportive, wise, not forcing, there's a comfort, there's a refuge in that that voice. And as we do the meditation more and more, we give a little bit of space around the thoughts so we can start to discern the tone of the message. I, would, I found this incredibly helpful in, in my own practice. The ones that are coming through with that agitation, thinking, thinking, and you just can name it and see it's just a thought. The ones that are coming through with some deep wisdom, those are the ones you start to trust more and more. Hmm, feels like it might be time for me to go to bed after all. Mm, feels like maybe I have energy to stay up. There's no right or wrong in this. It's just listening. You know, mm, I think it feels right to uh, to just be with the breath right now. You know, that's very different than you should go back to the breath and really get it together. You know, <laughs> just listening to that tone, along with hearing the tone, feeling it in the body. You know, when you've got those those different voices coming through and you don't know which one to believe when it's a very contracted feeling in the body when your shoulders are are tight and your throat is constricted and your jaws clenched you know because you're thinking what if this is true you know, don't believe it okay. it's just an old tape that you're playing that's frightening you when there's a a rightness to it. We all know this. We all know there's a certain rightness that can allow us to just trust and relax. And so, listening to your body, because the body doesn't lie. There's a place in us, not only in retreat, but outside in our life, that knows when we're starting to do something that doesn't feel right. In In the teachings... There's uh, the, the different kinds of mental factors. There are wholesome mental factors and unwholesome mental factors. Two wholesome mental factors are what are called hiri and otapam, or translated in the old Victorian English translations, moral shame and moral dread. Okay? <laughs> These are wholesome factors. Moral shame, where If you do something, there's just something in you that feels awful about it. Moral dread is the thought of other people finding out that you did what you did. We have a much more familiar word. It's conscience. Isn't it amazing that we're wired up with a conscience? Imagine what this world would be like if that weren't so. I mean, it's pretty hairy as it is with conscience. But if we listen deeply, when we're starting to waver about doing an act in our life, as we listen deeply, we can feel the rightness of it and start to trust it. Particularly if you have a commitment to precepts towards leading an ethical life. And so that is what he said, the Buddha said, is a foundation for uh, for practice. Because then when you're about to do something out of sorts, you have to get clear in yourself why you're doing it. He, The Buddha had a, a really good suggestion for um, um, deciding about whether an act is uh, should be done or not. I mean, this is his advice to Rahula, his son. It's also in the Majjima Nikaya. Where he says... You might have a thought arise to do something, and then you might act on it. If, you, if when you feel a thought arising, just decide, is this going to lead to suffering or to happiness, kind of like the Kalamas, and act accordingly. You might not realize it until you're in the middle of the action or the words that you're speaking. If you realize it right in the middle, just decide, reflect, is this conducive to happiness or is this going to cause suffering? And then he says, you might not realize it until after the act is finished. If so, begin right then and see, did this, was this helpful or was this not? And if it wasn't, see, reflect wisely and see how you might learn from that experience. So, again, reflection. Trusting also takes a lot of patience, too, because we're going to blow it over and over and over. And so, every time you blow it is a chance to practice compassion, as I mentioned in previous talks, for the depth of the conditioning. Think of the wise choices you've made, think of some wise choice that you've made. There's got to be some wise choice that you've made in your life. When you got in touch with it, wasn't it obvious? If you can be patient and relax into it and listen carefully, the choice, the decision makes itself for you. It's not like, oh what's going to be the right one? It just bubbles up and percolates and and is clear <clears throat> But sometimes <clears throat> you have to make a decision because there's a time it's, it's time sensitive and you can't wait and be patient and in that respect, there's the next level of trust <clears throat> I'll share with you a story that <clears throat> I I learned this a number of years ago. I was faced with a a, a big decision in my life, this is in um, 1977, whether to, um, I was a teacher in New York, school teacher, whether to go up to uh, the center in Massachusetts and work on staff, whether to continue teaching in in New York, whether to uh, move out to California, that was another option that was really compelling or to travel to Asia. And every one of them seemed like a good option. So I couldn't figure out what to do. I went to the wisest person I knew um, who could perhaps answer that question, who was a psychic, Reverend Miller. I saw him a few times before, $5 for a reading, He wasn't in it for the money. This was in Denver, Colorado. And I said, look, I've got all of these different possibilities. Um, What's the right one? What should I do? And he said, well, I won't tell you what to do. I thought, oh, (laughs) shh. But I will tell you one thing. And I got really excited. Yeah. He said, it doesn't matter. I said, what do you mean it doesn't matter? That's my life you're talking about. You know? <laughs> and he, he believed in spirit guides and guardian angels and devas and things like that, you know, and he said if you are stuck, if you're frozen in indecision, then the, the, the spirit guides can't help you and you can't, you, you, you're going to be frozen. But if you take the first step, you start putting yourself in motion and then you can maneuver, and they can help you, and you can see, oh, this, this feels right. Or you can see, oh, not that way. And then you have another option, another option. And you know how one thing leads to another, leads to another. And that's how our life is, isn't it? And as we put ourselves in motion, life starts to happen. So he said, it doesn't matter. It was great advice. <clears throat> So, with that, you can just trust. And as you trust more and more, you can be flexible and have options. This is from that happiness book again. Options and flexibility is one of the nine choices of happy people. And I want to read to you one person, Daryl, who for 25 years... Was, he worked successfully for a municipal government in Florida, and in spite of his success, he described himself as not particularly happy. <clears throat> he, was, um, he was not one of the happy people. <clears throat> when he was in his early 20s, Daryl mapped out a detailed professional plan that he followed without compromise. Now at 50, he's mapped out the rest of his career as well. Darrell is sure this plan will eventually make him happy. Security has always been my goal, so I've got my entire life planned out. I knew that staying in one profession would get me the benefits I need for retirement. I won't make it to the next level for five more years. Then when I'm 55, I'll be ready to move to another company in a senior management position. By that time, I'll be too old to go much higher, so at 60 I plan to get a job teaching engineering and public policy. I'll have enough money to retire at 65 and do what I really want to do. What does Daryl really want to do? He doesn't know. (laughs) (laughs) If he follows his plan to retirement, he's got 15 long years in a job that gives him security but isn't what he wants to do. And Daryl is sure that this plan is the only way it can be. He He easily offers 10 reasons why no other approach will work. Why is he so unhappy? Because he's locked into his own plan, unwilling to consider any other possibilities. And what is his favorite gripe? It seems like nothing ever works out for me. Some people are just lucky and others aren't. I'm so tired of being disappointed by life. Yeah, Agnes de Mille, the great dancer, Living is a form of not being sure, not knowing what next or how. The moment you know how, you begin to die a little. The artist never entirely knows. We guess. We may be wrong, but we take leap after leap in the dark. This is what trust is. Seeing life as an adventure and seeing that you're just where you need to be. My favorite line uh, in all of the Beatles, and I'm, Beatles are as much a part of my lineage as as the Buddha. Uh, (laughs) My favorite line is John Lennon's line from uh, All You Need Is Love. There's nowhere you can be that wasn't where you were meant to be. That is deep trust. Or Albert Einstein saying, The most beautiful and profound emotion is the sensation of the mystical. It is the sower of all true science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. So trusting means being willing to take risks and be wrong and learn from them. The wisdom is inside, it's not outside. And though it takes courage to look deeply, at times when you look inside and you see all the all the greed, hatred and delusion and everything that's in there, if you're willing to open up what you see underneath all of those confusions, is something very, very profound. You are the Buddha. This is why the Buddha taught, come and see for yourself. You know, he was moved because he saw those with but a little dust covering their eyes. Everybody doing, wanting to be happy and doing just the things that caused more suffering. And he saw, oh, it's possible for others to see what he saw. Their true Buddha nature. So once you get a glimpse of that, it's more and more uncovering it and nourishing it and listening to it. A deep listening, very deep listening. The Buddha's last words or in his last discourse <clears throat> Therefore ananda be lamps unto yourselves be a refuge to yourselves take yourselves take to yourselves no external refuge hold fast to the truth as a lamp hold fast to the truth as a refuge look not for a refuge in anyone beside yourselves And those who either now or after I'm dead shall be a lamp unto themselves, shall be take no external refuge, but hold fast to the truth as their lamp, and hold fast to the truth as their refuge, shall not look for a refuge to anyone besides themselves. It is they who shall reach the very topmost height, but they must be truly anxious to learn. It's going inside and not stopping by the view with the views that you prefer or how you think things are, but looking deeply for yourself and inside you'll discover the truth. So let's sit for a moment. This talk was given by James Barras at Insight Meditation Society on August 31, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.